So rather than teaching people exclusively through means of lectures and textbooks and readings, this is actually telling the story with all of your senses firing around you. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. So today we're going to talk with Dr. Stephen Ecker about the Oxford Study Tour and what we can learn from going to historic places. And after that, we'll have another edition of our segment, On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, business, etc., from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about March for Life. Last weekend, March for Life was held in Washington, D.C. Our friend Jessica Prohl-Smith was there, and we wanted to hear more about her experience there. Let me introduce her quickly. Jessica is a writer with 15 years of Washington, D.C. experience in public policy and on Capitol Hill, including advocacy for the unborn. Her work has been published in USA Today, The Christian Post, Washington Times, Daily Wire, and perhaps most famously, Jessica, our own Christ and Culture blog. (laughs) Uh, She lives in Cumberland, Maryland with her family, um, where she told us earlier she lives basically atop a mountain with chickens and barns and land and all the fun things. Jessica, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we'll jump right in. Tell us, what is March for Life and why did you go? March for Life is the largest pro-life protest and rally And it has been going strong since the unfortunate Roe v. Wade decision um, in 1973. So it's people coming from around the country, um, sometimes even around the world. I met a couple folks from Ireland there this year Mm -hmm. uh, coming together, not only to protest abortion, but to speak on behalf of the unborn and Mm -hmm. to provide support for women and children. It's it's a very peaceful and joy-filled event. So now, now that we are kind of this post-Roe world, even though we feel like we're kind of in this in-between, Roe has been overturned, but now it's kicked to the states. Uh, what's the experience like now at March for Life? It was very worth going. I um, it was it was snowy, and I do know several folks who were not able to join because their flights or trains were canceled. Uh, so it might have been a slightly smaller turnout. But it was full of joy and energy, um, despite the chill and despite the snow. And I think there's a sober sense among many participants that we we got our work cut out for us. That was always true. Um, And it's in some ways the end of the beginning with Mm. the overturning of Roe. So plenty more to do. Give us a sense of the crowd. You said maybe a smaller crowd this year, but historically, what, what kind of crowds are we talking about there? Yeah, it was it was not tiny. We wait. My uh, my group waited probably for an hour, like lined up, ready <laughs> as other folks got ahead of us, waiting for the for the actual march part to take place. So there were plenty of people there, um, a diverse crowd, um, and a young crowd, an energetic crowd. One thing I noticed this year was 
different voices um, participating. You you you'd have your folks who are motivated by their strong Catholic faith or strong Protestant faith, and sometimes that's very obvious. But then there were others who held signs that said something like pro LGBT and pro life. Uh, now, obviously, there's tensions in 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 some of those positions, but I was really encouraged. There is room for unity over some of these issues, <laughs> moving moving the conversation and advocacy forward. So I noticed on your Twitter, Jessica, I saw one that says it's a picture of you holding a sign or maybe your daughter holding a sign as well as um, a baby stroller says, girls got to march. Lovely to bring my daughter along for her first March for Life. So tell us a little bit about bringing your daughter and what was her experience there? Yeah, this year I had a chance to bring my daughter and my son. Uh, My son is just short of four years old and my daughter is about two and a half and going on 12. I mean, she, <laughs> she's precocious. <laughs> uh, we, I, I kept my explanation simple. Um, they're, they're still pretty young. So, you know, we're, we're marching because we love babies and we want to protect them. Yeah. Uh, it was cold. It was, it was hard. <laughs> it was a bit of a lift to actually get out there and, uh, and risk being out there for several hours with babies. But yeah. I got a bit of help. And one of the things that really stood out to me this year, even though the theme was kind of every woman for every child, my interactions with a couple of men actually really stood out to me. So just really briefly, you know, I'm pushing a very large stroller up the hill and I had just started chatting with someone. We had a mutual friend through my previous work on Capitol Hill and, and he offered to push the stroller. And, you know, usually I'm like, I can do it myself, but I thought I'll take the help. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just the kindness and interaction. I had several other men just like watching and ready to help, um, you know, a friend or two who actually knew me and and was ready to take, pull up the slack if I needed mm-hmm. a little yeah. assistance. But then later as I was I'm getting ready to to find my car and the kids were mercifully both asleep, but there was this sense of like anything could happen. It could all fall apart very shortly. I was pushing through a very busy crowd and a total stranger um, just looked me dead in the eye very quickly and sort of whispered uh, pro-choice forever. And, and I didn't have time to react or just be anything except kind of stunned. I'm like, he didn't really need to say that. Um, my signs were on my stroller, which is why he knew I was part of that that crowd. But it just hit me. Men sometimes don't know how to be a part of this conversation. Um, yeah. It can be rude and pro-life, but it's really toxic for men to say, oh yeah, I am pro-choice. I'm going to encourage you to choose to abandon your child and I just won't mm-hmm. be here. So yeah, for for any of your male listeners who are really unsure what to do, certainly think about your tone and and be wise. But but know that there's a place for you in the movement. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's there great. Really is. So Jessica, how long have you been marching? And and really, the question I'm after is, when did this become uh, so important to you? And and it's right to be that. When did it become so important that you would take? an annual few days out of your calendar to go to March for Life. I just want to hear kind of the personal side of the story from you. Certainly. I joined my first March uh, when I was a fourth grader. I was living up in New Jersey at the time. And so I got on the bus with my parents and my younger siblings and we braved the cold. 
And I remember chanting, you know, adoption, not abortion. And mm. I didn't really, I didn't know what it all meant at the time, but I knew enough to be there and to be there <laughs> intelligently. Um, yeah, my my advocacy has has looked a little bit different over the years. I haven't joined the march every year, but God did open the doors for me to work as a Capitol Hill staffer for several years and then also in conservative organizations that advocated for life. So I've kind of written the talking points and speeches for pro-life members. Um, in, in most of those jobs, I served mm -hmm. as the primary pro-life, as the staffer uh, charged with leading on the issues there. So I've kind of been behind the scenes thinking about it. And my commitment hasn't waned at all this side of motherhood. I think I have greater empathy mm -hmm. to see how difficult motherhood can be. And I, part of the reason I took my kids this year is I wanted them to do hard things. I mean, it's maybe laughable, but taking toddlers anywhere is a little bit hard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I want, I want them to see that mommy's committed to protecting the vulnerable who can't speak for themselves. And I want that to become their own mm. advocacy as well. It sounds like discipleship to me, Jessica. Well done. Jessica, thank you for reminding us that even though Roe v. Wade has been overturned, that was not the end. It really was just the end of the beginning. Uh, and I am so grateful that there are voices like yours who are speaking out on a national level. Next, I guess the next step is going to be how to address these things in a more local way. What would you recommend? We certainly have our work cut out for us. And I think it's disappointing to see how much our neighbors and and friends are not not quite in agreement. I mean, we've we we have seen some losses on the issues. In some ways, continue to do what we've done, be praying, be pursuing partnership with local pregnancy centers and working to reach women uh, through our local churches. There are in many cases, um, organizations already in place that are seeking to educate and to be available to provide resources. I think continuing to educate our children as well, um, just and any young people within under our care and nurture. And then um, there are several national organizations that provide details as far as what are what's going on at the state level, and so. I won't list them all, but March for Life has some information, uh, groups like Family Research Council, Susan B. Anthony list. There is a long list. I, I, I It can't be exhaustive, but do your research and look for ways to make sure that your state hears your voice on the issue. Jessica Pearl-Smith, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really Thanks, appreciate Jessica. it. Here at Southeastern, we believe that the Great Commission is the church's mission. That is why we are committed to ministry preparation in partnership with the local church. Through more than 40 advanced graduate and undergraduate degrees, we offer robust biblical and theological education that equips students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Visit sebts.edu to learn more. What are the benefits of traveling abroad? And what can visiting a location help us learn 
about history in general and perhaps Baptist history in particular. Well, today we're delighted to have with us Dr. Stephen Ecker. Dr. Ecker is Associate Professor of Church History and Reformation Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. His newest book is Zwingli the Pastor, A Life in Conflict. Dr. Ecker, Steve, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Dr. Keith Lee. As always, uh, it's a good time to be back here with our friends at the Center for Faith and Culture and talking about things that are uh, near and dear to both of our hearts. Yeah, there are so many digital resources available today. It's really thankful for them. Some great stuff. So why is traveling still important? Well, it's interesting. If you think about this um, in our digital age of technology, right? Like we would think that just digital mediums would be the way to access information, to do education and stuff like that. Um, But I think, you know, looking back to even as recently as the the pandemic of 2020, I I think that you begin to see that those mediums, while beneficial and helpful in in our context, uh, they're, they're not necessarily altogether holistic. And so I think even coming out of that, people's, seeing people's desire to continue to travel, to see the world, to experience other cultures, other contexts, um, there's something about uh, being in a location, meeting with the people. Um, the way I think about it is steeping in a context that is, that's really the education. That, that moves us beyond what we can find in a book or what we can find in a podcast or even on a television show when we get sort of a fully orbed experience and encounter in person. So f- for over a dozen years now, uh, the Bush Center has sponsored the Oxford Study Tour, and you have um, helped lead it probably more than half of those times. Um, it's called the Oxford Study Tour. I, I think I think when it comes to a place like England and Great Britain, they have more history per square inch than any, almost anywhere else that I I know of. So who is it that we go with? Tell tell us, talk about our partners and 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 how this works. What all happens? Yeah. So um, our partner with this is is Southwestern Seminary, uh, and Southwestern Seminary has had. Uh, this Oxford study tour running for decades now. I want to say 30, maybe even as many as 40 years. Yeah, they, they've got it down pat. And uh, and the desire really it was born of this idea of giving students, uh, like I said, sort of this fully orbed experiential uh, and instructive encounter in a context where the history happens. So rather than teaching people exclusively through means of lectures and textbooks and readings, this is actually telling the story with all of your senses firing around you. And there's something extraordinarily valuable about that, that grounding uh, of, the, of the retelling of the past. But I also think what's so important about this, and this is one of the, the reasons why these study tours are so powerful, is these things are not just about telling us about what took place in the past and teaching us about the history, there is this this inextricable link to our current context that is both amazing to see the threads of continuity that these places um, where the gospel was once proclaimed are still being proclaimed, 
But then there's also this heartbreaking reality of seeing what does it look like to to look at a place like, say, England or Scotland, where uh, the gospel used to be so prominent um, and was saturated. All of society was saturated in Christianity to a place now where it's been somewhat reduced to these buildings that are oftentimes now pubs and, you know, dance studios and it is restaurants. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you, I'm going to say something and then you tell me what it's all about. Okay. okay. You ready? Sure thing. Okay. You ready? It's like a speed round here. Yes, it is. Uh, the Eagle and the Child. Eagle and the Child is this amazing restaurant where uh, the Inklings uh, met uh, to discuss theology, to discuss life, friendship. Um, you can also get a Wonderful plate of bangers and mash. Bangers and mash. Man, I right love that. There. Yeah. Yeah. The rabbit room is right there. That's and they'll right. show you where where uh, Tolkien would read this manuscript that he was working on called mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings to uh, the, the other members with C.S. Lewis there. Um, Regents Park. Yeah. So Regents Park College is, is the Baptist college. Uh, that is uh, attached to and associated with Oxford University. That's one of the places that we stay. One of the things I, I like about the tour is we, we stay at university residence. So it's, it's uh, a glimpse at university life in the United Kingdom and in England and Scotland. And so it's the, Bapt- the Baptist part of, of Oxford University, if you can imagine that. Yeah, so, so you, we've talked about the Eagle and the Child and Regent's Park. How far or how close are, is one from the other? Well, most of the time, one of the flats that I stay in at Regents Park College, it feels as if I'm literally over top of uh, the eagle and the child. So uh, there, some would say a stone's throw. I would say just a a half gap wedge uh, away from one another. All on the same block. Yeah, all on the same block. Okay, Latimer and Ridley. Yeah, so the Oxford Martyrs, um, you know, you get to think about in Oxford the the legacy of the the English Reformation, uh, men who had... Uh, been transformed by not only the power of the gospel, but also transformed by the power of the, the scriptures. So when the Bible begins to be loosed in England uh, and people begin to read and see what the text said as opposed to what they were being told to to believe and practice um, coming out of the late medieval period, uh, these are men who believed deeply uh, even, unto, even unto their own deaths in Burned at the stake, right? Burned at the stake. The the very spot to have Mm -hmm. the the X marks the spot. Um, The kilns. Yeah, so the kilns is um, Lewis's house and his residence. And, uh, you know, oftentimes we'll get students that will get a chance to go out there and uh, tour the gardens and see the house. Of course, everybody always wants to see the... Uh, the wardrobe. It is up there. It's not the same it's one. Not I the don't same. Think. No. But, but there is a wardrobe upstairs in the bedroom. Just imagine what it what it was like. Yeah. But again, it's just it's to you know just to kind of see the snapshot of where history happened. I mean, to imagine C.S. Lewis um, writing and and living in this house is just it's just an incredible thing to imagine and, and think what what actually took place there. Uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. So the Metropolitan Tabernacle is the, um, uh, the, the church building where uh, Spurgeon once very famously uh, thundered 
sermons to literally thousands of people uh, without without the aid of an amplifier or microphone how many do you preach to on any given he was he was the amplification um yes i mean easily he would he would easily speak to thousands at a time um and it's a it's it's an interesting thing because you go back there today and it's kind of the original facade uh, that was there the battle of britain and hitler took that's right but the world war ii uh wiped the actual building out so the the building itself is kind of this interesting 19 is a drop back in the 1970s with all this wood paneling and stuff but the thing that's so fascinating to me about the metropolitan tabernacle is to hear about the the ministry obviously of spurgeon to think about the legacy of this great you know, Baptist preacher, but to also see that today in the 21st century, in 2024, that there is still a vibrant gospel ministry. They're doing some great inner city work. Absolutely. They are still reaching out to the community there in in downtown London and doing some wonderful things. Oni. So Oni is really, is pretty, pretty incredible. Oni, we go to the SS Peter and Paul, and uh, it is it's the church building where, for just shy of a couple of twenty years, John Newton famously pastored um, there. Of course, John Newton famous for penning Amazing Grace, and and so you get to we get to go back and actually see um, where this ministry was undertaken. Um, obviously, William Cooper was was there, who wrote many of these hymns as well. There Had is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's Tremendous relationship, yeah, yeah, these tremendous relationship between these two guys. Um, it is pretty cool to sing Amazing Grace in John Newton's church. It yeah. Is, it's a, it, that's an experience. That's, that's a hair-raising experience. Hair-raising. You, you get to sing that in his church building. For me, it has become this annual return. This is also where Newton's buried, so mm-hmm. this, is, this is where he was interred. And um, for me, it's always... Visiting Newton is always this recurring reminder to me about the transforming power of the gospel. Um, it's always important for me, at least, as a, as a minister of the gospel, and certainly as an academic, to remember that this was a man who was once loathsome in character, as he would describe himself. And he yet sold he was human beings for a living. Utterly transformed, absolutely. Was not only... Um, was not only a slave himself, but participated for years in the in the trafficking of, of human beings. And once the gospel got him, it it utterly changed him. Now, the interesting thing about Newton in this is he was very late to the to the game on the slavery issue. Um, but it was it was his relationship with William Wilberforce that became very very important uh, to the the abolishment of the slave. Uh, industry in in England and it, it's it for me it's all for me that is always the highlight of the trip is going and seeing Newton here to sing Amazing Grace to think about the transforming power of the gospel and all along whether we're in England whether we're in Scotland to meet these amazing Christians today who have been touched by this this same gospel and who um who are still participating in this this vibrant ministry that's there. So while we're in Oni, we just walk on down the road to the Baptist Church. Uh, what can we say about the ch- the Baptist Church in Oni there? Yes, yeah, so again, the Baptist Church, there, there, there's still this vibrant ministry that's going on there. Um, and, I mean, and, it's, and it's where William Carey was ordained by Andrew Fuller to be the first missionary. What an amazing, amazing, amazing little yeah. town. I mean, you're in this village that has such fantastic church history. Just incredible. Kettering. So Kettering is where Andrew Fuller 
uh, pastored. And again, this is where as Baptists um, begin to think about cooperation and what is it what does it take for us to get the gospel to the nations? Um, and the relationship between Andrew Fuller and William Carey was so vital. Of course, Carey willing to go, but um, Andrew Fuller remaining behind this, this, this language and imagery of staying behind to hold the rope uh, is so powerful. And it's such a picture of what Southern Baptists are about today that, yes, you know, we, we disagree on a lot of different things, and our theologies divide us in a whole host of ways, uh, but we have not wavered on the idea of missions, and it is, more than anything else, it is this idea of cooperating for the sake of missions, that we would get the gospel to the nations, that why we exist as a, as a convention of churches. That is, that's the tradition in the history of, of Fuller and, and uh, William Carey. John Bunyan. Yeah, so Bunyan, uh, we go to um, the dissenter's graveyard, uh, at Bunhill Fields, uh, which is where Bunyan was uh, was buried, and again, this is what um, it gives us a chance to think about the, you know, arguably one of the most important, if the the not most important, uh, Christian writings in all of history. Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. We get to think as well about uh, the nature of dissent. Uh, what does it mean to stand for uh, the truth of God's word? Uh, if we're living in a context that um, believes differently and begin to ask, as I say to my students all the time, we begin to ask uh, in places like uh, the dissenter's graveyard, what are the depths of your belief? It's not just about what we believe and why we believe those things, but what are you willing to sacrifice and give up for those beliefs? And obviously with Bunyan, he spent time in prison. And, uh, and here, this is a visible reminder that here's this great author of Pilgrim's Progress, who was buried away from the holy grounds of the Anglican Church here in the dissenter's graveyard. It's, it's, it's a real important reminder for us as Baptists uh, about the importance of dissent, when to dissent, and why. Since we're talking about uh, graveyards, um, Westminster Abbey. Westminster is interesting for me. Um, I usually do one of the lectures at Westminster, and Westminster is this strange... It's this beautiful building where you see some of the the most picturesque scenes of a church that you could imagine, uh, and yet it's also the place where um, you know British royalty uh, is is buried. So Queen Elizabeth and Queen Mary are both buried there. In fact, right next to each other, which I find which is, is ironic. rather ironic. Yeah. Um, but you've also got Westminster is also most people don't know this is also where that's where their tomb of the unknown soldier is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also where uh, they have lots of people either buried there or commemorated there. Uh, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin is Charles there. Dickens. Isaac Newton. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what you have there is this interesting. What I remind the students of there is you've got this. It, it certainly looks like a place of worship, but it also asks us to. To, to really ponder the question, what are we worshiping? And in this sense, it is sort of this, it's this exaltation of British history, mm-hmm. British achievement, um, which there's a lot to laud and, and to like and to appreciate there, but it also skews us away from 
um, like for instance, going to St. Paul's Cathedral in That's London. That's say next. We're going to talk like, about. Yeah, if we're like, going to talk about British achievements. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, is it Christopher Wren who was yeah. the architect? What a magnificent cathedral. Yeah. So you know, going to St. Paul's is 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 pretty incredible. Most people know about St. Paul's through uh, because of Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the building itself is absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, this is where. Um, uh, Princess Diane and Charles got married very famously, and and so it's 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 a wonderful building, but it's also still a functioning um, Anglican church. And so even the last time that we were there, uh, we were able to observe. We didn't participate in, but we were actually able to observe a Eucharist service uh, in the Anglican church, which was really really uh, beneficial for our students to see this other um, confessional heritage practice uh, practice the supper. Uh, right there in a, in a communion service in a very, very different way than what we're familiar with as Babs. Obviously, this is a great study tour uh, for that. But now let's move to Scotland, St. Andrews. Yeah, so Scotland is what I playfully call the, the really beautiful part of the trip, uh, having once lived over uh, in, in Scotland. So St. Andrews is fantastic. Most people know about St. Andrews, obviously, because of the it being serving as the home of golf and, and things of that sort, but uh, St. Andrews has this wonderful history um, that also maintains some of the the most horrific sites from the the Scottish Reformation, which was um, the the martyrdoms of of Patrick Hamilton, who was yeah. the the first of the Scottish martyrs. He was a twenty four year old. A uh, student at the University of St. Andrews who had begun uh, reading the writings of Martin Luther had come back and uh, was now speaking of this transformative gospel. And the bishop burned him at the stake right there uh, in front of the, the quad of the university. Uh, and then, of course, George Wishart, uh, who was the great Scottish preacher and who uh, died right on the, the outskirts of the, uh, the St. Andrews uh, castle, and when Wishart was was executed because of his his faith, uh, there was a, a young man, one of his sword bearer actually, that was there, and that was John Knox, who would become the great reformer of it was, Scotland. It was so it's so much fun to be able to go to his pulpit, which is quite extraordinary. So, where do you think? What's your best guess on where Knox is buried? Well, <laughs> Knox is he's in the car park in yes. spot spot twenty three. So, if you go just outside of St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. You'll find him uh, buried in the in the car park. Uh, there's a there's a plaque uh, memorializing him there. Um, but of course, he was you know the the fantastic Scottish preacher who um, was uh, known very much for his passionate, bold. Every once in a while, he knew how to stir up trouble. He absolutely did. I mean, if we think about Baptist preachers as as being hellfire and brimstone, well, he was he was sort of the you think about him as the Barry Bonds of Baptist preachers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Certainly on on steroids in that sense, but uh, you know, just really wanting drawing on that tradition of wanting to draw a distinction between uh, true religion and idolatry, and somebody like Knox believes so much in the authority of God's word that things were very much black and white for him, right and wrong, true and untrue. And uh, he was very passionate about uh, about what he believed was uh, the pathway to uh, a transformed Scotland. It was, it was a vision that he had caught 
living in Geneva as a Marian exile years earlier when he went to Geneva and found what Calvin had created there in Geneva. And that, in, in essence, that's some of what he brought back to, to Scotland as he, as he reformed the, the country. You know, we talked about John Newton having been a slave for a while. Knox was in, was in bondage also for, a, for a, a number of years. People forget that that sort of thing happened uh, all too common. So I could just keep peppering you with uh, places, names, uh, uh, dates, because as we said, the, the, uh, so much of church history in general and Baptist history in particular uh, originates there. So what do you think is... Um, the students' favorite thing? What, you know, whenever you take the students there, what do students come away saying, that rocked, that was cool? Yeah. Um, I, I really think most of the time our students find the day trip that includes a visit to um, Newton's Church to sing Amazing Grace, uh, to visit Kettering, talk about the ministry of, of Andrew Fuller. And then also that same day, we also go to uh, to Moulton and see Cary Baptist Church, yeah. to walk into the little shop where he wants cobbled shoes, and they have a, a replica reproduction of the map that he created when he first caught a glimpse of uh, what he called the heathen and and the taking the gospels to these distant lands. Uh, that's usually what students point to as the, the most transformative day because it, it intersects with so much of who we are as Southeastern Seminary, this desire yeah. to um, to do gospel ministry, but also to do gospel ministry with an eye towards taking the gospel to the far reaches of, uh, of the nations. But it also is who we are as Southern Baptists. I mean, it's, it's this idea of cooperation for the sake of not just preserving and maintaining uh, the the faith given once for all, but of taking it to people who've just simply never heard. So this is a study tour that primarily is made up of students, but it's not made up exclusively of students. So could anyone that wants to attend, can they take part? Yeah, so anyone who's interested in the tour, I mean, it's not uncommon for us to have pastors and their wives come, to have graduates come. Um, anyone who's interested in in history and in understanding more about the where their faith tradition comes from, both as Protestants, but also particularly as Baptists. Uh, and I'd also say anybody who's interested in understanding what ministry is like now in the, in the 21st century, one of the things we try to do for everyone who goes is to draw this connection between the past and the, the present yeah. and to make sure that uh, we not only talk about what what happened in these places, but to actually give students um, and participants on the tour a chance to what I what I sort of characterize as, as steeping in a context that is now you know in England it's you know if you're if you're if you're optimistic it's about three percent evangelical. Um, and that's on a good day. And Scotland is way worse than that in terms of the numbers. And so it's always a good thing to remember where you came from. But it's also, I think, a really valuable thing on this tour to remember the work that still needs to be done um, and the need for ministry in these these parts of the world. So what are the dates on this year's? Uh, so the dates tour? for this year are at the end of July and it runs, I mean, the end of June rather, uh, and it runs all the way until the 5th of July. So it's a little over two weeks long. Last week of June, basically, first mm-hmm. week of July. 
where would they be able to find out more information? So if you go on to the Center for Faith and Culture website uh, at Southeastern Seminary, and you'll find there is a, a link to, to the Oxford Study Tour where you'll be able to see some testimonials about past experiences, students that have gone on it, why they find it of such value. Uh, you see pictures and the applications right there. And for our listeners, just to let you know, we will put the link in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Ecker, for those who can't attend, um, what what tips might you have for them who want to know more about church history and, and Baptist history? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of, of really valuable resources uh, that are out there. Uh, one of the things you can always do here, which we encourage not only for our students, but I certainly for our alumni, is uh, we've got classes that you can audit online. Uh, so there's plenty of classes that you can audit here, um, both classes in Baptist history, but also electives um, in history. Uh, and then I, I'm a huge fan of biographies. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the the book that I did is to to give you a picture and a glimpse into the lives of men and women who have uh, who have changed really and, and helped to shape the the landscape of Christianity for today. So as we close, there's one last funny story uh, that I, I I've, that we're going to cover. The Angus Library at Regents Park is one of the great repositories of, I mean, it's the Baptist Smithsonian. I mean, there you have the handwritten letters by Charles Spurgeon. You have uh, the, the translated Bibles by William Carey. You've got all of these artifacts. And one of the most amusing things there, and it, sounds, it doesn't sound amusing when I first say it, but there is the bed, which is a cot, a, a wooden cot, that, on which William Carey died. Uh, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> Back about 100 years ago, uh, the good folks of Regents Park and the Angus Library allowed the artifacts of William Carey to travel throughout uh, the the, the Southern Baptist land and a lot of different churches. And I think it was one dear sister in Oklahoma looked at the cot, or it looks like just a little couch. It has a tiny little bed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so she decided that it looked threadbare, and so she reupholstered it and and thought she was doing everyone a favor. And of course, uh, you know, when it was returned, they were just mortified at what had happened. Um, And so... There's, that's another little piece of Baptist history there for you. And, and you know what? That sounds so true. You know, that, that just has the ring of truth to it about that whole story. Dr. Ecker, it's a delight to have you uh, uh, with us on, on the podcast. It's always, uh, I've always enjoyed the way that you lead us out in the study tour. Thank you for being with us today. Absolutely. It's always a privilege to be here. Thanks, guys. Now it's time for our listener favorite segment entitled On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where our guests, sometimes staff, faculty, and so on, tell us what they're reading right now. Uh, We've just finished interviewing Dr. Stephen Ecker, one of our own historians here on campus at Southeastern, about traveling abroad, but he also has just released a book. So, Dr. Ecker, I trust you're not reading your own book, but rather you have just released it. Tell us about your most recent book on Zwingli. Yeah, I appreciate that, uh, Dr. Quinn. Yeah, so just released this book with Lexham Press uh, called Zwingli the Pastor, A Life in Conflict. Uh, Basically, uh, through my studies of the Reformation, uh, the past really 15 years, uh, looking at a number of different avenues related to the Swiss Anabaptists, 
uh, at Zurich, uh, what was going on in my doctoral dissertation in, in Bern, I kept bumping into this guy named Huldrych Zwingli that seemed to be framing everything that was going on. And so a few years ago, I decided I need to spend a little more time understanding who this sort of forgotten, sometimes he's referred to as the third person of the Reformation. He takes a backseat to Martin Luther and John Calvin. So it's really a look at his life, but more from the perspective of his pastoral ministry, asking yeah. um, historical questions, theological questions, but also ministry-based questions about what does it look like as a pastor to try to lead your congregation um, when they may be reluctant to move in a certain direction, or when the congregation may get further out in front of where you're leading them, yeah. uh, hence some of the division that we see in the Swiss Reformation. All right, that's quite the, tweet, the teaser and cliffhanger. I'm going to ask you to push that a little farther. If you're going to give, if you're going to talk to um, active lay leaders or pastors, uh, people in any kind of ministry leadership and practice, what are one or two key takeaways from Zwingli that we can learn? Yeah, I mean, I think one is you can just learn um, what does it look like to do a ministry in partnerships with other people? And what does that look like when those partnerships uh, begin to sour? So it really helps us to think about how do we, how do we undertake gospel ministry uh, when maybe we have differences of opinion on uh, how to understand certain biblical texts, uh, but also how do we, what if our personal sensibilities are really what is driving the divisions rather than actual, you know, divisions over how do we, how do we understand particular texts? Uh, the other thing for me, especially as a Baptist, is it's interesting to me to just watch as a magisterial reformer to begin to ask the questions of what does it look like when uh, you begin to have a reformation take hold of hegemony? And what does it look like when you're not um, necessarily in control of things when you're trying to reform without the support of the authorities? And then what does it look like when not only are the authorities behind you, but you yourself become the authority? Yeah. Um, it's a real important questions to think about, especially for Baptists, about the relationship between church and state, um, belief, voluntarism, things of that yeah. sort. So I, I enjoyed the book a lot. So w- job well done. Um, he he l- ministered in interesting times. I think that's a safe way of saying it. So how did he handle the plague? Can you talk about what happened to him as he was ministering to his congregation and a and they have literally the plague. Yeah, yeah. So I think plague is very important in a couple of different aspects. One, it's deeply personal to him. He loses his brother to plague. And so that becomes experientially for him one of the means by which he starts thinking about the doctrine of providence. So he catches the plague and survives. His brother catches it and dies. And he begins to ask questions about what does this look like to to wrestle with God's sovereignty uh, in terms of that. And so for him, uh, it's very much an experiential thing of putting, as I would, as I would sort of characterize it, is putting flesh and, and, and blood on the theology of the bones of a, 
of a doctrine of providence. And so they get that experience of almost dying, being at the brink of death, thinking that you're going to die, but then watching his life be spared, uh, it changed him, um, becomes this lived experiential theology. Um, not that, Not that he was interpreting the word of God by means of his experience, but that he allowed the word to interpret his experiences. Is what he is what he really does there, and so that dramatically shapes him. the other The other thing I think is so fascinating in that is, and I actually frame the chapter on him when he when he uh, gets afflicted with plague. I frame this in the backdrop of the COVID pandemic from from twenty twenty, and the thought of somebody who was actually outside of and was on was actually on holiday when it when plague hit the city. He returns to the city and ministry, gospel ministry in the early modern period, in that sense, um, oftentimes could be a death sentence. And so they're, you know, the first responders for them in a world that really believed that spirits and demons were the really the genesis origin of these things, not microbacterial viruses and such. um, It. It, it was pretty impactful to me to think about the loving affection that a pastor had for his people and the the obligation that he felt to put himself at risk, to put himself really in harm's way. Yeah. Where can we find your book again? Yeah, so um, it's published with Lexham Press. You can get it at the Lexham Press website. Uh, you can also find it on Amazon, any of the usual Fantastic. And uh, just to wrap that up, there's two things, two additional questions we need to ask, and Nathaniel can incorporate these where he likes. One is, um, what is your favorite pair of Jordans? Which number? Elevens. Okay. So just know this. This is a professor that I've personally counted more than 37 boxes of Air Jordan shoes in his own house. And that was just the ones that were in his closet, not the ones in the attic. We didn't go to the attic that day. So, you know, well, probably well into the 50s or 60s. But the 11s are the best. Um, the next is, here we are just a couple of weeks out from Super Bowl. Who's going to win? Time will tell. Um, who are you putting your money on? It's metaphorical, but who are you putting <laughs> your money on? Well, at this point, I'm not betting against Patrick Mahomes. But uh, you grew up basically in Baltimore. I, I did, but uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, the, the NFL office in New York is pretty, is pretty keen on, on uh, the Chiefs. So Yeah. So never never go against Vegas on that or against New York. New York. Where, where are the Elevens? Cheer for Mahomes, <laughs> and uh, the Swifties win in the end. I think. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed our episode, please give us a five star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. That's very helpful for us and for our listeners. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>